0: Welcome. A uh, very special episode today of our upcoming podcast, Ortho Real, but actually, we're taking over a well established podcast, Device Nation, with Kevin Brown. Uh, podcast piracy here. Um, for those of you that are familiar with Kevin's podcast, he's got quite a following and has quite a following on LinkedIn. Well, someone commented that he should flip it around and have somebody interview him. So. We took over that opportunity, and today we're turning this microphone on him. We're asking him the questions. So, Kevin Brown, welcome aboard. Thank you for having me on. It was, uh, it was a bloodless coup. <laughs> All right. We're diving right in here because I am extremely inexperienced at this process. First question for you, what is a rep? And I mean that in the sense of explaining it to people that really – have no idea, and then also as as philosophical as you want to be with that of, of what is a rep, what do you do?
1: That's a good question, Dr. Barber.
0: Basically, and I've been
1: asked that question many times over the years, and I've struggled to give an answer sometimes because it's it's a little complicated what we do, but at the end of the day, we act as a liaison between the company and the end user, which in the medical device world is the surgeon, it's the clinician. Uh, anybody in that sphere. And our job is to uh, move as much product as we can on behalf of the companies that we represent and provide as much value as we can to the end user, which again, surgeon, clinician, whatever, and ultimately the patient. Uh, So that's that's basically what we do.
0: So there's a, a sales component to that. And what would you consider the rest? Technical support
1: Yes, sir. There's a couple parameters that we've talked about on Device Nation that, are, that come into play here. You've got the, uh, the sales component, uh, unless you're a clinical cover person, and a lot of companies have that uh, carve out for, uh, and I would say uh, pacemakers have that position Uh, Many other companies have that where it is a clinical person and they are just responsible for the clinical aspect and not the moving of product. But by and large, uh, there's the sales component and then there is the the relationship aspect that we deal with of having to work in close quarters with people over extended periods of time. And then there's the technical aspect of knowing the, the technical side of this job and what can happen what can go right, what can go wrong and, and having that down.
0: So. so you, you've got a part there where you are, are selling, but also where you are in hospitals, clinics, ORs, uh, sterile processing departments, uh, all throughout hospitals, surgery centers, clinics everywhere.
1: That's correct. Wherever our product, uh, wherever our our, um, what's the word I'm looking for, wherever our product armamentarium
0: may take us, that's, that's usually where we end up at some point or another. Okay. And you're there to, uh, to answer questions and to, to fill gaps. I think you touched on a little bit. So are there people that are wondering why would a, why would a doctor not know these things? Why would you have to uh, answer questions for them? That's
1: a very good question. And I, I usually answer it to people this way is let's say, uh, Dr. Barber, you may do, you know, I'm just going to make up a number. You may do 500 knees in a year. So, And that's a close number. Okay. So in my job, though, I don't cover uh, just Dr. Barber. I cover a bunch of other surgeons. So you end up in this multiplier scenario where you may see 500 joints in that year, but I may see 4,000. So my exposure to what can happen right or wrong and how to get out of that scenario or, or, or something that just may be a one-off, uh, I get exposed to that, and you may not get exposed to that because you're limited to what you do every day in the operating room. So that, that is one of the values that a device rep brings. It's just when I start thinking about the tens of thousands of cases that I've been over my career, uh, of having that depth to it and not getting surprised all the time. You're like, oh, okay, I remember seeing this 10 years ago, or, and this is what this surgeon did to get out of this. So it doesn't um, in any way demean the, the knowledge base that the surgeon has because you know things that I will never know, uh, and you went to school a lot longer to do what you do. Uh, but when it comes to my specific skill set and the, the implant that's being opened on that table, I will usually have more exposure to what can happen uh, within the scope of that implant than the surgeon.
0: I think that's beautifully stated, and I think the specificity part of that is so important. And to your point, even though I may do hundreds and hundreds of joint replacements a year, sometimes I'm using a particular device that I may do five times a year, ten times a year for a specific situation. Now, I feel like it's incumbent upon me to know what all of the different implant companies provide and what special tools and special implants there are. But a lot of those I just don't use as many times. And so while I know conceptually what needs to happen in the OR and for that patient, I may have really sort of micro-specific technical questions that you're then there to answer.
1: Correct. I got a phone call this morning from a rep who was in a case and was in a real crisis mode, and the doctor was cussing at him behind him on the phone. And um, it was only because I've done so many of that particular procedure that I knew the instrument that was giving him trouble and that it was sticking. And if you don't milk this particular instrument preoperatively, you can have issues. So that's where that just that uh, repetition and time uh, can pay dividends
0: when you're in situations like that. So you just hit on so many things there that are ripe for questions. One, you've been at this a long time and have a lot of experience. How long have you been doing this? Uh, 28 years as of this year. So almost 30 years, a lot of cases, a lot of experience with that. The other thing that you just touched on is, uh, is surgeons. That's, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would would argue that we all have varying degrees of personality disorders uh, that allow us to do what we do, um, and those are, are positive and sometimes negative. So what are some great stories from the trenches? Give me one if you remember. So let's do it. From, well, I don't know if I want to call you out on surgeons and surgeon bad behavior or not, but let's let's say with a with a rep, you know, you're having to deal with a lot of personalities. You're having to read the room constantly, I think. What's a situation where you've seen another rep that just missed it and just foot in mouth what is absolutely the cringiest rep-surgeon interaction story that you've got?
1: I was in an operating room one time, and the surgeon walked out with the rep, and he turned around to him and said, I don't appreciate the joke that you just told in the room. And he said, I'm not going to use your product anymore. And these guys were as thick as thieves, as they would say in the South. Uh, they were very close. They did a lot of things together. And he was like, you know, we're, we're friends. We do all this stuff. We bike together and all this stuff. And he said, look, if we were friends uh, before all that, then we'll be friends without my business. And he had said something in the room that really pushed his button. And the, the thing that's the most challenging aspect of this job is that, you know, take surgeon out of the equation. People are people. And the thing that I tell to one person that may make them laugh may be the thing that makes the other person just hot under the collar that I even dared to say it. So that's the real challenge about navigating this job um, is of knowing when and how and uh, just navigating these personalities and uh, letting them lead. I guess I guess at the end of the day, it, it really is like a dance. And, and by letting the other person lead, you can avoid a lot of those potential casualties. But uh, the moment you start to lead, you're out there and things... Uh, can go wrong. And, you know, I'll I'll throw myself under the bus on a story. I talk a lot on Device Nation about other people's uh, uh, things, but um, I had a, a rep call me one time from a major teaching institution, and he asked an extremely technical question about a case he was dealing with the next morning. And I spent a lot of time with him on the phone and walked him through it, and I thought I did such a great job of taking something that was really complicated and making it super simple, and he got off that phone call very thankful. He said, I understand what to do, and I feel a lot better about this case. And I said to myself, you know, I'm getting pretty good at this job. So the very next morning, I'm in a revision, and that little voice in the middle of the case said, you know, maybe you should check your implants that they sent you again. And I went out there and checked, and my heart just sank. They had sent the wrong side, and I didn't catch it. Uh, They had written it on the board wrong, and just, so there I was. And what I call the green mile, I had to walk the green mile and go back in the room and tell the surgeon that we did not have the right side implants. So fortunately, we had a lot of other inventory there, and we were able to make something work, and I thought maybe I dodged a bullet there. He came out in the lounge after the case, and he said, "Uh, if that ever happens again, I'm switching companies. But, you know, I could barely hear what he was saying because all I kept hearing in my head like an endless loop was, you know, I'm getting pretty good at this job. You know, I'm getting pretty good at this job. And uh, that was a real teachable moment for me about staying humble, uh, staying low to the ground, and not thinking too highly of myself or to think that I've somehow gotten somewhere to just stay at the very bottom. And and usually trouble doesn't find you there as much as it does when you think you get a little too comfortable and you think you know something that you don't.
0: So. You've got so much great stuff wrapped up in there. And I will just say from, you know, the other side of the OR part, it is uh, it is constantly humbling. And uh, for those that, that might be newer to uh, this type of podcast or, or coming in from my side of it, you know, you're talking there the side left versus right. Um, one of those things that you know there should be a lot of checks and double checks for. You're talking about a revision surgery where something's being redone. Some of these these terms that we use, and um, that's uh, it's it's as you say, it can be be very humbling uh, constantly and just. It's a situation that's time-sensitive because it's not like some other jobs where you can walk away from from a project and go pick up different parts somewhere and come back to it the next day. Everything is happening uh, in real time for that patient right then that's, that's under anesthesia and everybody's waiting. Uh, so uh, the stakes are a little different and the timing's a little different than with a lot of uh, other jobs. Uh, some great points there. So... You've talked a little bit about it and your your time in this game, so to speak. Uh, how did you get into this? And, and was there there special training for it? And how does this happen? How does somebody become uh, a rep or become a super rep like Kevin Brown? Uh-huh.
1: I'm low to the ground, doctor. Uh, I got into this job through a crazy series of events. I uh, let me try to dial this in as tight as I can. I was invited. I had finished college. Okay, let me go back. So I came out of high school and sold books door to door. And to make some money for college, I was the guy knocking on your door, working my way through. And Varsity, uh, which was out of Nashville, Tennessee, and I went to Macomb, Mississippi, and had a wonderful experience Knocking on doors and just seeing all kinds of crazy things happen. From having dogs sicked on me to husbands threatening to beat me up because I sold something to their, their wife. and But but had a very successful summer and realized that I wanted to do sales. So I came out of school and went immediately into the corporate route. And, and I thought, I really like this. But then it hit me when I got married that... Uh, if I was going to go to the next level in my job. And my wife was was honestly pushing me as well, that I needed to to get college finished up. So I was really into cars. I still am. And I would detail cars on the side. And I had this crazy idea. These doctors that would give me the keys to their Mercedes to go detail, I thought that, that would freak me out, giving me <laughs> the keys to their car and saying, drive this somewhere. Unknown and bring it back in one piece. So I thought, let's let's bring this service to them. So there was nothing like this at the time. You couldn't buy a pressure washer at Lowe's. You couldn't get water tanks. I mean, we were really on the cusp of this. And uh, so I went and made a cold call on a, a guy that had a uh, uh, had a. Water Slide Park in Wilmington, North Carolina. He thought it was the coolest thing ever, and he took me up to Greenville, North Carolina, which is where I would end up eventually, uh, in the medical device world, ironically. We went to a farm and tractor place, bought a tank. We bought a lawnmower engine, bought a pump, made a pressure washer, and put it all in the back of the van and called it mobile wash. And just killed it. Uh, paid my way through school. And nobody had anything like that. So I was always getting people stopping. Going, what are you doing? And then so um, one of my customers during that time was Dr. Murray Seidel, who was an orthopedic surgeon. Got to know him. And I finished school. And a friend of mine invited me to a... Uh, prison ministry meeting, and I really didn't want to go. It was an ACC tournament weekend, and I i kid you not, I felt this strong impression that I was going to find my job there, and that scared the living daylights out of me because I did not want to be working in a prison with convicted felons. It just it didn't feel right for me, right? I, I, I'm thinking, I'm a sales. I, I know I'm wired to do sales. Why would I go to this to do this? So um But then that fear that I was going to miss my date with destiny took over sometime in the middle of the week, and I decided to go. I stuck it out to the bitter end, and there we were in the closing ceremonies, and I thought, what in the world? No magic moment happened. I went to the bathroom, and there was a guy putting on mime face paint, and I talked to him about as much as you would talk to a mime in a public (laughs) restaurant, and... He was just sitting there trying to get out of that box. And <laughs> I, uh, I just went on with my life. Two weeks goes by, and the gentleman that invited me to that thing said, you know that guy that was doing mime that you met in the bathroom? I said, yeah. He said, well, he wanted me to tell you that his company was hiring, and would you be interested in interviewing him? I said, well, sure. What is it? Well, he worked for a company called Depew, and I asked my doctor friend, Dr. Seidel, I did his car, uh, his Ford Taurus SHO. I still remember it to this day. And he said, oh, this is, he showed me the implants and this is what they do. And, and through another crazy series of events, um, that interview led to an interview with Zimmer, uh, which is where I would land in, in, in a business I knew nothing about two months beforehand and did that uh, job with that particular company for a good 27 years. So, And, and just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, I will tell you this. One of the more crazy things, when I first started out, two things happened. I, I, somebody caught me in the hall at one of the hospitals, and there was this bowl with the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen in my life in it. My my maiden voyage in the OR and a nurse says, I want you to guard this with your life. Don't let anybody near it. And I'm like, okay. And I'm just trying not to throw up. It was a fifteen pound ovarian cyst. And Ooh. I don't know why I got nominated to be the bodyguard. Yeah, that's for this very non-orthopedic. Very non-orthopedic. And then another within that same week I saw an amputation and I really thought, I have missed my calling. I'm not supposed to be doing this. This is disgusting. Uh, my first couple cases, I didn't even like looking at the incision, and my distributor was behind me, and I'll never forget him grabbing me by the... He saw that I was looking over everything, pretending to watch. And he said, you're going to watch this, and I want to see your eyes on the field. And so it was, uh, it was real touch and go at first, but I absolutely fell in love with the people, the, the, the products, the, the process, the, the surgical environment, the, the stress, believe it or not, um, having to creatively come up with things on the fly sometimes, I just I absolutely have loved it.
0: Well, it sounds very much like you were coming from the, the sales entrepreneurial end, mm-hmm. and then the medicine or the surgical part of it, it just sort of got, got lumped on there later for you, and that that worked out, I guess.
1: Yeah, because in a way, this job is entrepreneurial. You know, nobody's sitting on you every day and telling you to get out of bed. You've got to go figure it out. And a lot of it has to do with branding. A lot of it has to do with, you know, these things that small businesses deal with every day. That's basically what this job is. So you have to be a self-starter and uh, have to be able to look down at, uh, be able to look at your territory and come up with a plan and a process of how to Get product out of the door, and so a lot of those things that 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 flow for a, an entrepreneur and a, a, a kind of a small business person are absolutely part and parcel of being a device rep. Well,
0: that's interesting. The the small business aspect of it too, because for those unfamiliar, the companies that you that you mentioned, Pew and Zimmer, are multi-billion or maybe now multi-trillion-dollar. Uh, ginormous companies and so then you're sort of in a at a subset or a sub uh, substation of those operating a small business and that's that's interesting to think about with that.
1: Yeah and for the listeners that don't understand how that structure works most of the time there is distributors that work a defined territory and then there is individual reps that work under that distributorship. That distributorship may be a state two states, three states, uh, usually. And then you're operating uh, mostly on teams now. When I first came along, it wasn't teams. It was uh, you had your specific territory, and you worked that territory. So you really were out on an island on your own for the most part, and you just had to figure it out. Now most of these... Ginormous companies have gone to more of a pod concept or a multi rep concept for various different reasons. And uh, but um,
0: so uh, over that time, what have been the the biggest changes that you've seen in the industry and and in surgery and in in the medical device world since you started?
1: So we'll start with the devices themselves. Uh, when I first started. When you were looking at the IB2 versus the PCA and what some of the other companies were coming up with uh, the LCA. So and, and to
0: jump in for somebody that, that's, that's not familiar. Uh, <laughs> IB2 is uh, Insol Bernstein uh, two, the second iteration of that right. knee. And uh, PCA or the uh, porous coated anatomic knee uh, that was actually designed by uh, my mentor, Dr. Headley and several others, uh, Dr. Hungerford, Dr. Krakow a lot of others that were on that that design team but these are some of the really not the first very first generation but some of the knees that really made knee replacement at large scale in the United States possible and successful.
1: And thank you for that correction one of the challenges that I still have is that I talk like everybody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, So in the early days there was very distinctive differences between all the implants, and when we were going out and doing our sales stick and I was talking to a surgeon who did a PCA, uh, the philosophies and some of the implant differences with the IB two were very stark, and we could say that from company to company, the uh, what the LCS had going on with the meniscal bearings. Now this is going way back when you had two different bearings on that knee. They were very unique things and I think that over time those differences have gotten smaller and smaller and we started reaching the peak of what I call the, the diminishing returns curve on implant design where most systems if they were put in correctly all did well and the, the, the things that we would have 15 years ago that were a very unique identifier to our system, now most systems have that. So I think there has been, over the course of my career, I, I've seen it go from a highly differentiated market for the most part, to more of a commodity, com- I can't ever say this word right, <laughs> commoditization of, of implants. Uh, now there's still some cool little shiny things out there that can differentiate however for the most part things are starting to look a lot alike and now we're seeing the the real differentiator is okay how are we putting these things in and now we're seeing the ushering in of robotics and um, augmented reality and custom patient blocks and all that stuff to kind of differentiate in that sphere now In terms of the business side of it, how has that changed? Again, going from more of an individualized rep scenario to now you're working on sales teams. There's a lot of pressure on these companies now that most of them, uh, the ginormous ones are publicly held institutions. The earnings per share, the quarterly earnings call uh, is driving a lot of behavior right now, and making those numbers has become the priority at the expense of of most things, so that's changed the dynamic. There's a lot more pressure now. The companies are having to massage things here and there to make those numbers. Uh, whether it's tweaking how they pay or how they organize territories, or um, it j- I could just go on and on about that. The this business has changed a lot in that respect. It's still, at the end of the day, though, has has not changed in the sense that it's about people in your interaction with them on a day-to-day basis, and do they feel like that you brought them value by having them in your operating room in your hospital? That part has never changed, but I think everything around that uh, orbit, so to speak, it has changed.
0: Makes sense. The business parts changed, but the the value part of the equation and what you bring is still the same. I think that's a great way to say that. Tell me about your training and educational background, what's involved in becoming a rep.
1: That's a great question, Dr. Barber. I've get asked that, I've gotten asked that a lot over the years. Do you have to go to special school for that? Now, when I first started, take a trip down memory lane, it was total OJT, on the job training. I was given a surgical technique and said, go at it. Uh, Two months into the job, I'm in a knee revision uh, where we were replacing implants that had previously failed. And the surgeon looked at me after making the incision and he said, what do I do now? And I was absolutely terrified (laughs) uh, because I thought, if you're asking me that, then we are both in such a world of hurt. Uh, And that's how we had to learn it, though, that School of Hard Knocks, there wasn't really a formal training program a lot of just observation and, hey, doc, can you, can you show me how you did this? I leaned a lot on surgeons I called on to train me back in those days. Now we've got medical sales college. We have formal training programs with all the companies that are very, very robust. Uh, even with all that said, though, most of that training is involved on, is, is geared towards the technical aspect of this job and maybe some of the selling, Uh, the relational aspect of this job and the the interpersonal interactions uh, that we deal with a lot in this job don't really get covered a lot. And maybe some of the day-to-day stuff that we talked about, even with, you know, okay, how do I check in implants that's going to keep me out of trouble? How can I do this and that? Again, uh, those things are still OJT. They don't have formal training programs for that. Uh, But there, like I said, there is... Really, uh, there's strong training programs uh, now that did not exist when I was when I was coming
0: along. You touched in there on relationships. Uh, I think that is a strong current running through what you do. You've got relationships with surgeons, with hospitals, with staff. Those all have a lot of different dynamics. Can you tell me about the the good, the bad, and the ugly with that?
1: Sure. Uh, So you have to segment it out. A lot of the uh, relationships that we have with the hospital are not necessarily interpersonal relationships. They are strictly business. A lot of the relationships that we develop, again, because so much of medical device is proximity plus time. We work in close quarters and small rooms with people over years. And you necessarily develop relationships through that, hopefully. Uh, if you're not, then that's another discussion. But uh, the, the challenge in those interpersonal relationships is to always know in the back of your head that there is a business element to what's going on. You can never forget that. Uh, that it isn't just, hey, we're buddies, so you use my stuff. And that's when people get in trouble. They, they think that that relationship's going to save them when they, sli- they slide And don't pay attention to things. And, you know, me and this doctor, we go fishing together all the time. And we do this and we do that. Um, And that's when trouble is right around the corner. And I've seen that play out so many times. I had a rep one time tell the central sterile, uh, tell the scrub tech, Dr. So-and-so doesn't need that instrument. He'll be fine because this guy was very connected with him socially. And the surgeon found out that he said that and decided to teach him a lesson, and did not use any of his products anymore. That was that business component that was threaded through there the whole time, but the rep never saw it. So there is that. We do become oftentimes close with our customers, and those are some of the relationships that, that I have just grown to cherish. Uh, it's the people that I love about this job, and the relationships that I've developed, the surgeons who still send me X-rays, or hey, what do you think about this? How are your kids doing? I had a great conversation with a, a dear surgeon friend of mine just two nights ago, and just catching up with him and his life, and uh, that's the part of the job I love the most: is the the relationships that I've developed with uh, the the staff in the OR, uh, the the surgeons that I've gotten the opportunity to work with, and and even some of the people in the hospital. It's not like it used to be. I I used to be very close to... Is this starting to sound like Bruce Springsteen's glory days? (laughs) Sitting around telling boring stories of glory days. But back in the old days, if I can say that without being laughed at, we really did try to help out the hospital and had relationships with the purchasing departments. And somewhere along that line, many hospitals decided that, that it was in their best interest to take a very hostile view of reps and, and just try to make our lives difficult and miserable and work against us at every turn and belittle and insult us and question our very presence in the hospital. And, and a little stupid rep trick here. My mom always said, you catch a lot more flies with honey. And there's a lot of opportunities that reps have to really help out an account. And they're much more willing to help out an account that it, they at least feel are on the same page with them, but these hospitals, and they'll never know it, uh, they'll never know it, but the things that I've seen over my life when reps just did not go the extra mile to help them only because they knew that it was a hostile relationship. And I've never thought that served anybody's purpose of coming into a meeting and just um, uh, wanting to fight wanting to fight with the reps when ultimately we can accomplish a lot if we're all working together towards the same goal. And I will take a hit financially for a, an account that I feel like has been helping me and working with me over the years, and I've done that. Uh, I've taken hits on things that just to help them get through something or to cover them, or I would drop three hours to go get a, something for them that I don't even sell, and I've done that before, that they got back ordered on and they were really screwed for a case the next morning. Those are the kind of things, uh, that I know a lot of reps have stories on that, of, of the, the opportunities that we have to serve our accounts, and we're always gonna do it to the best of our ability. However, the, the accounts that seem to think that an open and hostile relationship with the, the people that are there to serve them is the right way to go i i don't don't necessarily think that's the right
0: play if there are any what is an idea an implant something you saw in medical devices in orthopedics and whatever that you saw when it came out and you said this is going to be a total bomb this thing's never going to work but it took off Hmm. or were there any
1: At the time, Zimmer introduced something uh, called the micro mill, and I don't know if you ever saw that or not. But it was uh, a frame that you would put on that would allow you to machine the femur with a big burr. And
0: yeah, so not used in my career, but I'm familiar with it. And and you, you uh, you thought that was going to be it. I, I wasn't
1: sure because it looked bulky to me, mm-hmm. and the the exposure that you needed to get this frame in, and it was so different that honestly, I wasn't sure that that thing was going to do, go anywhere, and it really got adopted. Once guys tried it once, and the flatness of the cuts you could get out of that thing, uh, I was surprised at how well that did.
0: Um uh, so you were surprised by that, maybe the converse of what I asked, but then that sort of faded a little bit, didn't it? Or is that is that fair?
1: Yes, it did, it did.
0: But you're you're I think seeing a, a reinterest in in milling and burring and some of those techniques to go along with, with robotics and some other systems like that. So things have sort of circled back on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I got the, f- the question turned around. So let me go back.
0: Well, I was going to turn around turn it around on you uh, next, anyway.
1: Okay. Yeah, we're starting to see that coming back to machining the the surfaces rather than just using a saw blade. So you're right, it, that, that part has looped back around. It's always fascinating to me to see that see some of these procedures that may not go where you think they went are actually a harbinger for what's coming down the road. It just gets embraced a different way. Like the two-incision hip uh, came out, and there. are were people that had some issues with it. However, it did get people used to doing that cup through an anterior incision, and I, I can't prove it, but I think it made some surgeons more comfortable. That when anterior hips came around, they were like hundred okay, percent. I, I
0: know I know of a couple of surgeons that were two incision guys, and for those that are listening, that may not be familiar, this was uh, fashionable maybe fifteen years ago, yeah. maybe even twenty. Some, yeah. somewhere in that range. And um, outside of, of certain circles, I think it, it did have a, a fairly stout complication rate, but uh, you're right. It, it got people familiar with, with doing at least part of the surgery through that anterior incision. And then as as techniques evolved and as some uh, some pioneers like Joel Mata and some other people really kind of got out and started talking about anterior approach hip replacement, uh, it's gotten, gotten more and more popular over time. Mm-hmm. So for you, if you're, if you're future casting, what are going to be the game changers? What are, you, what are you seeing right now that you think is going to, if you had to guess right now, is going to shape orthopedics in the next 20 years?
1: I'm still waiting for an interpositional that's going to change the game. I know the uni spacer was something that was laughed off the scene. Um, I know there's been some work on hydrogels of something that you can just slip in between uh, the surfaces that that have some destruction to just keep them off of each other to buy some time. I, I, yeah.
0: Patients ask me all the time, what, what kind of foam do I have that yeah, I can just squirt in there, something to fill that space and make it work? So uh, is that more likely then to be biologic at this point than to be a, a metal-type implant like the Spacer?
1: That's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, we, we're seeing the artificial meniscus starting to roll out, which may be uh, kind of a down payment on the interpositional down the road. Time will tell. I'm still looking for a biological. I've even thought about, you know, is there some nerve denervation issues you could do? If somebody has a small isolated defect, can you just numb that area? i uh, been thinking about that. I think uh, augmented reality, you know, we're always thinking about what is going to leapfrog robotics. And I don't know that for sure what that's going to be. I'm excited about the augmented reality aspect of it, of being able to do a CT scan. And I've seen this in some spine renderings of having a surgeon be able to look at a patient that hasn't even been opened yet, and they can see their spine.
0: Yeah, where, and, and what he's talking about is having uh, the patient's anatomy essentially projected on them. So uh, I, as a surgeon, will be, I'll be like uh, the terminator. It'll be like Arnold from those first few scenes in T two, and I'll actually have that heads up display of everything that's going on, uh, which just would be absolutely amazing Isn't just it? for the, just for the coolness factor, nothing else. Um, so I, I think we're all all looking forward to seeing where that's going to go. Um, all right, so let's flip it back a little bit. We've gotten. Uh, down uh, into some pretty uh, nerdy knee and hip stuff here for me and you and the guys in the room. What were you talking about? IB2 and PCA and Unispacer and all this stuff. Um, so, Kevin Brown gets a call from his friend in Oregon How do I find a knee or hip surgeon where I am? What's your advice if you, let's assume that, that you're not as super connected because you probably know somebody there that could help them? How do, you, how do you help them? How do you guide them to find somebody that can take care of them and take care of them well?
1: The orthopedic world is a pretty small world, and usually uh, we all know the joke about six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, usually you're just, in, in my world, you're only one to two degrees away from answering that question. Uh, the staff knows. The, the reps know uh, in any given scenario, you know, this, this is somebody you might want to consider for getting this procedure done. So that's usually, uh, the path that I would take to, to connect them with, you know, me personally. Now, if somebody doesn't have that inside baseball angle, I think, uh, I think what you're doing on social media is just phenomenal in that patients, uh, potential patients can go on to what you're doing right now on Facebook and the other forums that you're on, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. And not only do they have a an intimate look at what you're doing and, and the heart behind what you're doing, they also see your engagement with patients that you have worked on and their experiences with you. So I think that is uh, really valuable what you're doing. It's giving patients that don't have the inside baseball uh, angle and the the contacts within the hospital, they can see right up there on their computer what your patients think about the work that you're doing. Uh, I think that's an extremely valuable tool.
0: And I would argue that that's really uh, the same as your previous answer, which is that now with social media and a lot of these outlets, those six degrees are, are just different because people are essentially able to connect with strangers on the internet. And so it loops back to what you said before about specificity, because I had a, it's a patient of mine, email me today of, I've got this friend in Atlanta that needs an expert for this body part. And so then... You know, before I even start down the my network of who do, who do I know or who do I know that knows somebody else there, it's okay, well, if we're talking about a knee, is this a sports injury? Is this somebody that needs a replacement? There's so much specificity among surgeons and among providers. And, and so we narrow it down, and then I try to go help out. And, and we're just all more interconnected because of, of those uh digital frameworks, if you will, for how we all connect now. But I think that's exactly right.
1: Yeah, social media does a lot of things bad,
0: and it, it, it
1: contributes to a lot of negativity. But one positive thing that it does is it's taken the six degrees down to one to two for a lot of things. So you really are only a couple degrees away from finding an answer to a question that 15 years ago, you would have been a hundred degrees away from finding that answer. So,
0: what are your uh, what are you passionate about outside of work? Uh, outside of, of medical devices, um, obviously that would be enough to keep you busy full time. But if you get away from it, what do you what do you do? What are you excited about?
1: I am. Does the podcast count?
0: Absolutely. Okay. I. So tell me that. Well. Now will jump off. Tell me that story. How did how did you go from, from just selling this, this stuff and supporting surgeons like myself in the OR and deciding that you wanted to podcast?
1: When I first started with Zimmer, I think one of the most rewarding things that I did in my career was uh, me and a friend of mine in Pennsylvania were selected to head up what was called the VSA program, where Uh, They were starting this pilot thing of training reps that just came on and bringing in reps that had worked out in the field for a while to help support them with more of a real world angle on things. And that training aspect of helping other reps was something that I just fell in love with and just became passionate about it. And um, which is no surprise, my son's a school teacher. I feel like I'm a teacher trapped in a in a rep's body, and so uh, I was at a a place in life when I just felt like I was pregnant with some of this stuff that I really wanted just to share with other reps what I had seen, these scraps of paper that I collected over my career experientially that were good, bad, just things that could help people, because I never, I never wanted to walk into the OR and have something happen to me that the rep in the next county had an answer for me, and I wished I would have known that, right? I, that that patient deserved, and that surgeon deserved me to know that information. So, and, and you really turned me on this whole thing about crowdsourcing, uh, crowdsourcing some of these experiences. So, uh, I begun to put content. I began to put content on LinkedIn. I called it stupid rep tricks and and just little pearls of things that I picked up. Uh, I I remember a surgeon teaching me an amazing trick on how to get that tibial um, resection out when you're doing a uni. Just the easiest way in the world to get it out. And I thought, I've got to share this with people because I see so many surgeons struggle with that of making their tibial cut on a unicondylar knee and then sitting there for the next couple minutes trying to get the, the piece out. So it started with that. It raised some eyebrows, uh, to put it mildly. But I even had somebody ask me, "What are you doing?" <laughs> what are you? And I thought I just wanted to help people. That was the whole mindset behind it. So then, at that same point in time, my wife was doing um, Better Pockets podcasts about real estate. Uh, she's a kind of a real estate goddess. She got me into listening to the podcasts, and I I, I just began to. Get introduced to the medium. I'd never heard a podcast before in my life. And then somebody said, you know, why don't you take some of that information and put it into a podcast? And I said, okay. So I went out, and what do I buy for a podcast? What do I need equipment-wise? And then I got Dr. Vinod Das on the show and to... to, to Spark the whole thing, and then I ended up connecting with you. You were creating some amazing content with LinkedIn, and you were a real inspiration for me of, of taking this to the next level. And then I just absolutely fell in love with it, of just being able to sit down and listen to people that have been my heroes in the space, uh, both community surgeons, people that are doing things at, a, at kind of a, a wider level, but just being able to sit down each week and hear their life story. Um, I'll never forget being at the academy many years ago and having a conversation with Dr. Paul Lotke. And this guy wrote textbooks for knee replacement. Sure. And I was just in a, so taken with the back and forth. And I learned so much out of that conversation. And so much of this job is learning never stopping learning, because you never get it. And uh, so I feel very privileged and honored and blessed that every week I get to speak to people that, that usually have something I need to know or, or something that I can do better. So that part has been such a passion of mine. I love that. And, uh, and I love playing electric guitar. It's been really fun here in Mobile, Alabama, because the guy that taught me to play went to Murphy his name is Will Kimbrough, and now he's a famous uh, artist in Nashville. And uh, I've just absolutely fallen in love with that instrument. And uh, whenever uh, it's, it's good stress management to uh, crank it up and play to some, some tracks and stuff. And I've gotten a chance to play in bands over the years. And that's just been a lot of fun, just having a musical. It's a creative outlet. Just, just like all these other things well, that we're doing,
0: you've got to have something when you're full time rep and full time podcaster and, and taking on all these other things to uh, to help you decompress some of that. So, yeah. uh, just as an outsider, I definitely see that that teaching aspect and that that heart for teaching that goes into your your podcasting and your other LinkedIn content, even back to stupid rep tricks, as you say. And it's interesting because. I was thinking about the parallels there, what, what you're doing. I think when you're learning as a rep, uh, there's obviously a lot of technical training, with whatever company you're with, and they all have different programs for how they do that. Uh, but very much some, some apprenticeship, if you will, where you're learning from other reps, you're learning from hopefully somebody like you that's, you know, however many tens of thousands of cases and however many decades into their career, if they're lucky, um, Surgery is the same way. I mean, there's a lot of things that are that are textbook, and you know. But we all there's some some version of apprenticeship where you're learning from somebody that did it, and you know, if like in my case, you're you're privileged to learn from just some amazing people, then you pick up a lot. But there's other great folks out there that would have something to share, and some of these uh, media that we have now allow that with. View Medi with LinkedIn. There's just so many places that that surgeons and everybody in the the industry and in healthcare can go and can see something that may be totally different from their experience or from what they learned. And just as a as a listener and as a surgeon, uh, I mean you've you've had some interviews here. I mean, when you talk about Larry Dore and Tony Headley and Leo Whiteside, just surgeons that are absolutely iconic in our field and to be able to just spend an hour or two with them and, and pick up some of what they have to say and their philosophy about things, um, you know, I, I don't think any of them would be offended for me to say that they're they're probably in the the evening of their careers if you if you will or, or some that you've interviewed that have even uh, ceased operating at this point but are still uh, involved and so, for you to have have digitized and immortalized their thoughts for the rest of us to be able to come back to uh, is is special and is is really cool and really important. So I'm I'm just still pretty in in all of all that. Um, what's going on for you? What's uh, what kind of projects have you got going on, or are you interested in, or, or do you think that's coming in orthopedics or something that's sort of out there right now that people are sleeping on a little bit, but is, is going to be big. What, what's Kevin Brown got going on uh, in your, your non-existent uh, other time at this point?
1: <sighs> the thing that's really spinning around in my head lately is taking that concept of what you said, apprenticeship. I, I, I think that That's the posture we have to be in all the time is that we are an apprentice in life. Uh, I love that line from that Kansas song, Carry On My Wayward Son, and they said that I claim to be a wise man, it surely means that I don't know. So I think having that posture of apprenticeship, and then what does that mean practically? So, how can we take this concept of value out to reps at a whole nother level? And I think the Mastermind series, which is kind of a big thing right now uh, across the internet space of connecting people. It reminds me a lot of church small groups of where you're connecting like-minded people that are accountability groups, but they know it's a safe place to talk about the things that challenge them. And I think that's the next step for me of being able to take that concept up one more level and connect people with people Can walk this thing out, and I'll give you two. I'll give you an example of that. A a rep called me from Seattle. Uh, Let me don't put that Seattle in there because that might. uh, A rep called me from the West Coast, and he had a question for me that he was just scared to ask on his team because his team member, his team leader, was not the type of person that he felt like he could ask that question without being belittled or made fun of or demeaned. How come you don't know that type of thing? And it, and it struck me that not every team is functional <laughs> and not every relationship intra-rep is positive. And there's a lot of people out there that are, that are on an island. So how do we connect those people with other people that really want to help each other? Because there's things that I don't know that I know you could teach me. How do I get connected. And I think a mastermind group is going to be the ideal forum to put that together. Um, there's going to be people that don't feel like they need apprenticeship. Uh, I had a friend of mine tell me the other day, he said, we well, you know most, most reps think they should be leading a mastermind group. And I thought, well, you know, that's a challenge in itself right there. But I think there's enough people out there that that know they don't have all the answers. And having a group of people around them to commiserate with and to strategize with. I am very fortunate that I have a group of guys that I'm close with and I can call them anytime. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? They can tell me if they think it's stupid and I'm gonna take that the right way. I'm gonna be thankful that they told me that it was a stupid idea or that I could do it better or whatever. And I think everybody needs a group like that around them. So part of my vision for the next phase is to provide that vehicle for people. Of um creating a device specific small groups to connect these people with other people to do this challenging job and very stressful job uh, with others uh,
0: same and I, I think i'm I'm you know maybe not in the context of a mastermind group, but i'm I'm blessed to have you know, quite a few different surgeons around the country that are an email or a text away to run something by and they're people that are you know maybe to your point able to check their ego or their dogma at the door they're pretty open-minded about things but we'll we'll consider problems and give advice and and they're just like you said they want to help which is you know what on our end of it we're trying to do which is help our patients and so it's just another way to pull resources in to do that. A, that's a great
1: point one of the one of the challenges that you run into is that you just have to be humble enough to know that you need help and I think that's the big key right there. There was a rep many years ago that was checking in implants and I was watching him check them in and I know this is a stupid thing but this is where the apprenticeship stuff comes in right
0: So he's checking them in in a hospital what's going on It got shipped in for a case okay. so he opens up a tote let's
1: set the picture and there's a bunch of implants in that tote. And in this particular tote, it was a bunch of articulating surfaces, which is one of the components of a total knee. These things were all jumbled up together, and I was watching him point and go, okay, I've got an 18, 16, 12, 14, whatever. And I thought to myself, you're going to miss something doing it like that. You literally, it takes extra time. But if I was being a teacher to him, I would have said take everything out of that tote put it on a table, line it up, check it three times to make sure you have everything. Uh, But he was not a person that I could say stuff like that to without taking it wrong. And it wasn't too long ago after that, it wasn't too long after that, that he had a scenario where he was missing a surface and was calling other people in a panic, can you help me out? And I thought, you know, I, I should have said something, not that I know everything, but I knew right then watching the way he was just doing that one little step. Uh, the, the, the challenge is getting, and I, I was not always at a place where I could receive stuff either, so I'm very sympathetic to people that are in that state of life where they can't receive from people or they get defensive or the, it's hard for them to receive. Um, but to me, if you're gonna make it in life, forget medical device, you have to be like that. that Somebody even that's coming at you the wrong way, they may be mean to you and they may be somebody you don't even want to hear from. You think they're a jerk, but maybe they have something to say to you that you really need to hear that's going to change your life if you'll um, if you'll receive it, if you can open your head and your heart to receive it. That's the challenge right there. Uh, and I think that the big challenge for device reps and anybody, you know, you, you do this thing for a while and you start to get your hands around things and you start to think you understand things and you lose that mindset of being an apprentice. And then all of a sudden people can't speak into your life anymore. So,
0: okay. So speaking, uh, especially to people who don't want to hear things, surgeons were, were right about everything all the time. Uh, sometimes we even, uh, You'll have one surgeon with two opinions on the same issue, and he's right about both. Uh, we're just just pathological in that regard. Um, for you, almost thirty years now, if you got a chance to very anonymously speak to surgeons that might be listening to this, what advice would you have uh, coming from the rep side, from surgeons you've seen, from things you've seen in the OR? Of you know, how do you get better? How do you be better over a career uh, because we've got this anonymous podcast venue where you know there nobody's going to know that they're listening to to Kevin Brown the rep and what he would tell them to do. What advice would you have for surgeons?
1: So many problems happen in life just because of poor communication, and I think that the, the surgeon being open to communicate. With the rep, I've had many a surgeon tell me, look, if you see anything that, you know, we talk about it in the timeout. If uh, Does anybody um, have any que- any concerns? If you have any concerns, speak up, right? Now, that's in the timeout. But sometimes... So,
0: again, so if we have somebody that's not, not listening, what's a timeout?
1: So, at the beginning of the case, uh, we never want to have wrong site surgery, or we're doing the wrong procedure on somebody. Uh, a surgeon told me, and I don't know if you want to put this story in there, but a surgeon told me in his training that uh, they were doing a bunionectomy um, in medical school, and they did it on the wrong side, the wrong foot. And they they realized it real quick. They closed it up. They did the bunionectomy on the correct foot. And when the patient woke up, they said, you may be noticing an incision on the other side, but just know that we needed some real anatomy, uh, some normal anatomy to compare it against. And wow. <laughs> that, so that was way back when. And then we in, got into the lawsuit phase and wrong site surgery could just destroy a community surgeon. I'll never forget being in a case in a small town in North Carolina and he looked in the window while he was washing, my, washing his hands and it, it clicked that she was prepping the wrong leg. And he went in there and just lost it and he came back into the scrub sink and he looked at me and he said, you know, that's a career ender in this town. If that would have happened and I wouldn't have caught that. So it wasn't too long after that that they... Uh, people began to see the need for safeguards. How can we make sure that that can never happen because it can never happen? So before the case now, uh, we we talk about the patient's name, allergies, left. We even go to the extra step of having the patient sign their site. We go through all these double checklists, just like an, an airplane pilot would go through on every flight, just to make sure that we've made sure that we're not doing
0: um, the wrong
1: thing. So yeah, that thanks,
0: thanks for speaking to that. And I, you know, I didn't know if you'll have some listeners that may not know. And obviously, that starts before the surgery with pre-op nurses, with surgeon coming in. You know, we talk about it. I mark the site; they may mark the site in certain uh, institutions. Uh, the staff will mark, and then the surgeon will mark, uh, so multiple checks beforehand. And then obviously, uh, once that patient's anesthetized, they're not able to participate in that process anymore. So at that point, that's where the timeout comes in, in the, in the OR, where the staff and everyone just stops what they're doing. Uh, and it's, it's typically led by the surgeon, although that can vary. Um, and, and we announce what we're doing and what side and, and make sure everything is uh, is exactly right because as you say that part can't go wrong
1: yeah so getting back to what we were talking about uh, the communication if you see something say something so to speak well you know what yes and no um i i have covered surgeons of all stripes i've had some that were very open to dialogue if i saw anything that looked weird of uh, feel free to speak up and then i've had surgeons that were a little less receptive and then I had some surgeons that would literally uh, get angry if you said anything. So I, I think, again, it's all about bringing value to each customer. And if bringing value to them means standing in the corner and keeping my mouth shut during the case, then that's that's I'm a guest in that hospital and I'm a guest in that OR suite, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. Now, there are ways of asking without asking. You know, I I remember looking at an extramedullary tibial cutting guide, and it was clear from my vantage point that we were getting ready to make a tibial cut that was going to be 20 degrees of slope versus what was called for in this particular procedure, three degrees. So then I had a, a rep dilemma. You know, do I say something And a lot of reps struggle with this when they see something that, that in their minds, may not be quite right. Well, there may be a reason why the surgeon is dialing in that much slope. So I think a a great way of addressing that is say, Doctor so and so, you know, what do you think about the slope? And then, then that addresses it without you questioning as a rep what they're doing.
0: Well, and I feel like the the point you're getting to there before I made you jump down that rabbit trail about timeouts and and wrong side surgery uh, is surgeons being open and communicating.
1: We love that. I would much rather a surgeon tell me, I am, in fact, I had a surgeon do this. I had a a rep who worked for me and he chased her down in the parking lot and said, I am never going to do anything with you. So don't ever call on me. (laughs) Now that sounds harsh, but you know what? I'll, I appreciate that. People that are open and tell me, don't say anything through my cases. Or if you see something, say something. Or any point in between there. Because we'll do it. I'll do it. Whatever you want. Because I know, I'm very aware that I'm a guest. So I, I love that communication.
0: Well, and I think somebody that... Uh, it's that open is demonstrating their intent and that they're they're about helping the patient at that point and it's not themselves or or serving some other agenda so I think that's a great point so um we may have belabored that a bit but um
1: I think and and can I just throw one thing in there absolutely I, I think it's incumbent upon us as reps to not just wait for other people to communicate with us but ask you know, if I'm going into surgery with you for the first time and, and I don't know the answer to this, is ask, what, what do you see my role as being with this case? Uh, just like we asked the surgical techs, do you want me to use a laser pointer? How involved do you want me to be? You know, uh, How well do you know this system? Do you want me to say anything? Do you want me to hold back? Part of that is incumbent upon us to get that information uh, because people aren't going to necessarily tell you everything. Sometimes you got to ask the questions so that you know the the proper path and your
0: role in that OR. So, fantastic, Kevin Brown, you uh, are bringing a ton of value to the LinkedIn community, the orthopedic community, the podcasting world, uh, the rep world, a lot of uh, different avenues here. And I thank you so much for letting us turn this around and ask you a bunch of questions and and giving you a platform to. To speak out. You spend uh, so much time sort of giving a platform to others and and letting them talk about ideas and things in the the medical device world and the surrounding worlds. So thank you so much for that. If you had to leave everybody, surgeons, reps, everybody listening to this with some final thoughts, do you have anything? That's a broad question. Yeah, (laughs) it's a
1: good question though. I mean, I, I asked people all the time, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? And they they think about that because you're trying to get them to sum up a lot into one thing. Um, But if I had to say uh, one thing is to uh, be humble, and what does that mean? That means it's not about you. It's about other people, and it's not about other people in the context of what you can get from them. Because then that's ultimately self-serving. If I'm serving you, but because I want to get something from you, that's not humility. That's uh, that's an um, that's a, a business arrangement. That's that's something completely different. So I, I, a guy gave me a shirt many years ago, and I wore it and I wore it because I always wanted to be reminded of it. But it was the the word me, and it was a circle with a line through it. <laughs> And I wore it to the gym and just destroyed that shirt. And eventually I had to throw it away. It was just beyond repair. But um, it was just a reminder that to be successful as a surgeon and and to be successful as a rep, as a husband, as a father, uh, I could just go on and on and on. Being in a band, I mean, we just apply this to everything, is that if, if you really embrace that, it takes care of so much. It doesn't mean life's not going to be challenging and you're not going to screw up and you're not going to have things uh, fall on you. Uh, you're going to have a bad day. I mean, all those things. But it does cut a lot of things out of the mix. And, and I found that when people really do see that about your character, it's amazing how there will be a mattress oftentimes under you when you do fall because people know where you're coming from, and and they will will help you when you fail, when they sense that that's your posture. But the people that it's all about them, and they live their lives that way, when they do fall, they often bounce hard, because there isn't anything to catch them, and nobody really seems to want to catch them. So that's the one thing that I've learned the hard way, um, over my career that I think if I had to sum it up with one thing, if I would have, if I could have done one thing better that would have addressed a lot of the travail that I've experienced over my life, it was that.
0: Love that idea of, uh, giving without expectation, uh, the idea that, uh, that legacy is greater than currency and you do some of those things, uh, just to, to help and to serve. So, um, I think that's certainly, uh, a stance that you've been clear on and something that you've shared throughout your podcast so thank you for that and thank you for talking with us and uh letting us put questions to you